This is the beginning of Passion Week and so named because of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ that we will meditate on as a community this Good Friday. The question that I want to start off with this morning is, why did Jesus die? Every child in Sunday school can give you the answer to that question, right? Jesus died to forgive me my sins so I can go to heaven. And while we develop and refine and nuance that answer as we grow mature in our faith, basically the answer remains unchanged. But why did Jesus die? Not theologically, but historically. What was the historical reason for Jesus' death? As you know, Palm Sunday was the day when Jesus came into Jerusalem uh, triumphantly. Lazarus had recently been raised from the dead, a unique miracle. The people were in euphoria, they were talking about it. Expectation was running really high that Jesus might be the Messiah, ready to usher in the kingdom. And they said, Hosanna, save us now. That's what it means with the emphasis on now. And yet less than five days later, some of these people would be shouting before Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. What happened to change the triumph of Palm Sunday into the tragedy of Good Friday. Now you might say, who cares? We have the theological answer, we're going to heaven. Why bother with the historical one? Can me bear with you, bear with me for a few moments because in the nearly 48 years that I've been a Christian, it is my, I've only been learning in the last 7 or 8 years the significance of the historical answer to this question, why Jesus died. And believe me, it is of immense practical significance. So bear with me as some of us may be going into a little bit of unfamiliar territory as well. The answer to this question begins by getting a little bit of a glimpse into what first century Judaism was like. We're so used to seeing Jesus from a Christian perspective that we've practically forgotten that he was a Jew who came to Jewish people and did his ministry in Israel, first of all. The dominant Jewish worldview was of course controlled by the Old Testament. The creator God created this magnificent world He created human beings. The first human beings rebelled against Almighty God and plunged this world into chaos. And God's way of fixing what was wrong in this world was to begin to build a nation through one man named Abraham. And through Israel become the solution to the problem. Yet she became part of the problem by her own rebellion. And yet they continued in this belief that somehow in spite of that, the creator God who elected and chose Israel would still accomplish his purposes and fix what is wrong in this world through this particular nation. And this would happen at a critical point at the culmination of history in this world. This is a big storyline that defined Israel's self-identity. Now at the time of Jesus, Rome was ruling Israel. And the worst rub of it, if you will, for them was not the high taxation, was not the difficulties in their life, but the fact that pagans were ruling over God's people. And had been doing so for nearly 600 years from the time when Babylon captured Jerusalem and took them into exile. Yes, a small group of people had returned under the Persian rule. So while the geographical exile was over, they were still for all practical purposes still experiencing the exile which was in terms of judgment of foreign rule. And that in God's land. And so Jewish hope remained alive during this time. And there were four dominant components to the Jewish hope at that time. First that Yahweh would return to Zion visibly, take up residence in the temple, either purifying it, cleansing it or rebuilding it. Israel's enemies would be defeated and they would be enthroned as rulers of the world 
representing his rule. Then theologically also the exile would be over for them. You see, for them the concept of forgiveness of sins while still in exile made no sense at all. Because they were sent into exile for punishment for their sins. Therefore for Israel to experience forgiveness of sins while still in exile didn't compute. Those two had to go together for them. So in this milieu, governed by Rome, inflamed by this fourfold hope, there were three broad options that the leadership took in the nation of Israel at that time. The first one was compromise. Get along with your political bosses and just carve out as good a life as you can for yourself. And the classic exponents of this were the Sadducees. They were the priestly class. They ruled the temple. They were basically anti-supernaturalists. What a contradiction in terms. They were leading the worship of the people and they didn't believe in the supernatural. So let's get the most as we can out of this world. And then there were others who were separated. They agreed with the judgment upon... They said, yes, the Sadducees have corrupted the temple. For them the model was Israel in the wilderness and so they withdrew and waited for God to show up again. This was primarily modeled by the Essenes, the Qumran community, the people from whom the Dead Sea Scrolls came. And then there was a third group, for them revolution was the answer. Say your prayers, strap on your swords and fight, literally. And the military victory will also be a theological victory. And the primary exponents of this were the Zealots. But, now where did the Pharisees fit in? Because they feature so much in the Gospels. And we haven't mentioned them at all. Well, the Pharisees certainly were not lined up with the Sadducees. They were on the other side. They were not anti-supernatural. They believed in, in the resurrection of the dead and the fact that God would do that once again. They understood that, of course, as a national resurrection, not the way we understand it. And their focus was not primarily the temple like the Sadducees. It was the law, the minutia of the law. But... What I've been learning in recent years anyway is that it was not just a moral preoccupation. The, the cleanliness of the people by a rigorous adherence to the Torah and the million and one amplifications in the mind of the Pharisees had political significance as well. It symbolized Jewish identity and a realization of the dream of national liberation as well. And so they naturally lined up actually with the Zealots. In fact, the Pharisees fomented revolution from behind the scenes. Into this condition, ruled for 500 years by pagan forces, characterized by this fourfold Jewish hope and by this threefold response, came Jesus of Nazareth. We have to understand his message in this context, first of all. So let's look, first of all, at his teaching. He began by saying, repent and believe. That was his opening statement. Repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. Now, you and I immediately know what repent and believe means, right? It means to confess we are sinners, trust that Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead. That would have made no sense at all to his original hearers. For the simple reason he hadn't died yet. And he hadn't risen again yet. We see this term almost exclusively in terms of a call to a religious experience. That made no sense at all to his original hearers. So what do you think they, met, they thought Jesus meant? Or what was the most likely meaning? Usually when we come to things like that, we have to find out how the phrases and words were used in contemporary time by other people. And we do find that. Approximately a few years after Jesus' crucifixion, a man named Josephus was born. And he eventually went on to become a Jewish aristocrat and a famous historian. And in 66 AD, he was sent to northern Galilee, where there were brigands who were leading the 
fomenting revolution against Rome. And he went to him and his goal, he was sent as an emissary to this brigand to try and persuade him to lay down arms and instead trust in Josephus to work out a political uh, solution to the problem. And so when Josephus went and confronted the brigand, you know what he said to him? He said, repent and believe in me. What do you think he was saying? Was he calling the man to have a Christian conversion experience? It wouldn't make any sense at all. It wasn't a religious call at all. Basically, that word meant, change your mind about using revolution as a means of bringing about the change that you want. And trust instead in me to bring it by a completely different way. That's what it meant. And so when Jesus came and said in this milieu that you now understand, when he said to these people, repent and believe, what he was saying was, none of these ways are going to bring in the kingdom. Not compromise, not withdrawal, and especially not revolution. Lay down your arms and trust in me to bring in the kingdom in a completely different way. That was the central thrust of his call to repent and to believe. And basically when he said the kingdom of God is at hand, what he was saying was, this fourfold hope that you have is about to be realized. Yahweh is about to come to Zion. Me. The exile is about to be over. But not in the way that you are expecting. Basically he was offering a fourth option. To the way of compromise, withdrawal and revolution. And the essence of his way was found in the Sermon on the Mount. That's where it fits in. Not just as a code of ethics for Christians to follow. But this was the way in that context that he laid out. It was the way of poverty of spirit and humility. It was the way of mourning, not over taxation and a hard life, but over your heart condition. It was the way of meekness, which specifically had to do with the emotion of anger when your personal rights were being infringed upon. It was a way of mercy and forgiveness. It was a way of walking the second mile with the Roman soldier who could force you to walk the first mile. It was a way of loving your enemies. And you can imagine why he clashed with the Pharisees the way he did. To the Pharisees, this was weakness. This is no way to conquer Rome. You got to fight. Now he also went on to say, if you don't choose that way, if you don't choose that way, the consequence is judgment. And, and of course, we again think of judgment in terms of hell and eternal consequences. That was, again was not the primary meaning. Basically, he was saying, you don't live this way, you choose the way of revolution and continue, you're going to bring judgment upon the city. You're not going to defeat the enemies, they're going to crush you. That's the significance of the house built upon the sand and the rock at the end of, Rome, at the, end of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, that wasn't just a simple ethical challenge to follow the ways of Jesus. In that context, it primarily meant... You, you continue on the way of revolution, you are building your house upon the sand, and it's going to come crashing down one day, as it did in AD 70. Follow my way, and it won't. That was the option he gave to them. You can see now how utterly revolutionary Jesus' teaching was in that context. The Sermon on the Mount was first of all preached by a Jew named Jesus to Jewish people in that kind of a context. That was his teaching. What about his symbolic actions? See, we live in a, our, 
where we are today, especially in the evangelical tradition, symbols don't play much of a part. In fact, we are highly suspicious since the reformation of symbols. And we've lost something in that. We've lost a lot in that. Because in the rest of our lives, symbols play a huge role. (laughs) Remember what happened when the Blue Jays got to their first World Series and in Atlanta they flew our flag upside down? Oh, there was a lot. It was front page news the next day. Because our symbol was being attacked. I've heard stories of church splits when the piano was moved from one side to the other. Oh, they can tolerate false doctrine, no problem. (laughs) But move the piano... Why? Because it's the symbolic significance of that. Symbols get to the heart of our worldview, And they tear us apart in a way that mere words don't. Remember we used to have those flags up here of Turkey and Uzbekistan and others like that? We had an international worker from one of those countries come in here and she asked me, what are those flags doing up there? I kind of explained to her why. She said, you've got to be careful. She said, because if one of the natives from those countries come here and they see that flag, they're not sure whether you're honoring it or dishonoring it. Wow. Well, what did Jesus do with the symbols of Judaism? There were four, four or five, four major ones. Sabbath, food laws, the Torah, and the temple. And they were all given by God. And if you look at the Gospels, you will find that Jesus was pretty casual about all four of them. In fact, he seemed to go out of his way sometimes to wave a red flag. Sabbath, for example. Several times he deliberately healed on the Sabbath. That was like waving a red flag before the Pharisees and they jumped every time. As for the food laws, he says, it's not what goes into you that defiles you, it's what comes out of your mouth. And Mark adds these words, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And then the Torah. In the Sermon on the Mount, six times. You have heard it said of old, but I say unto you. I mean, he wasn't going up against Moses. He had heard, said earlier on, I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill the law. It wasn't Jesus versus the Old Testament. It was Jesus versus all the Pharisaic variations of it. Which they were depending on for national purity and, and eventual realization of their political dreams and liberation. He said, you have heard said of old, but I say unto you. You have heard said of old, but I say unto you. And an even worse uh, violation of Torah for them was the way he ate and drank with sinners and tax collectors and Gentiles. Oh, the, the food laws were also part, the food laws in the Torah were closely linked together. And this common table absolutely infuriated them. So he, he was pretty cavalier towards the symbols. Like he was kind of burning their flag on a regular basis. You can imagine the mounting fury and the anguish and the agony and the suspicion. And then comes the crowning blow. Because of all the symbols, the temple was absolutely central. The temple was central to Jewish life. Why? It was the place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. I will dwell in the midst of you, God had said, way back in the wilderness. It was the meeting place of God with human beings, sinful human beings, as they offered sacrifices. More than that, it had royal and political overtones. Because the temple was designed by David, Israel's greatest king. It was built by Solomon, another one of their great kings. It was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king. It was kind of rebuilt, however, humbly by the returning exiles. 
And then for one brilliant period of time, for about a hundred years, two brothers named the Maccabean brothers led a powerful revolt against the Syrians, cleansed the temple of the defilement, and for one hundred years the Hasmonean dynasty was born. And for that one brief period of time, Israel was actually independent. So the temple was very closely connected with the kingship. And of course in, the, in their time, in Jesus' time, Herod, the puppet king that had been installed by Rome, curried favor with his people by rebuilding a magnificent temple. The one that took 46 years to build. And even among the people who withdrew, even among the Qumran community, their expectation was that when the king would come, when Messiah would come, he would rebuild or cleanse the temple. And so the temple was a supreme symbol. Now let's see what Jesus did on, the, on Palm Sunday and what significance it takes. He rode into Jerusalem for the last time. How did he come? He came on a donkey. And while it appropriately is a symbol of his humility, that belongs to another sermon. Because first and foremost, he did it because it was a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. Your king comes to you. It was his way of symbolically declaring to everybody that that first component of the Jewish hope was indeed being fulfilled in him. Yahweh was coming back to Zion. But, but, not for victory. This is what he lamented. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Any scripturally sensitive Jew coming along with Jesus that time would not have been able to put the two together. Zechariah 9 being fulfilled, Yahweh is coming back to Zion, and for this, that was a twist to their hope they did not know about. And then you will read in Mark 12, remember the second component of Jewish hope was Yahweh would come to Zion and he would take up residence where in the temple. Guess where Jesus went after this? You read in Mark's gospel, you will say, Jesus went to the temple. He was reenacting in symbolic language exactly what their hope was with the one unexpected twist. So he shows up in the temple and all Mark says is he looked around and went home. There was an inspection in the temple. It was a precursor to what was going to happen the next day. And the next day we read he went to the temple and he drove out the money changers. And he overturned the table of the money changers and drove out all the animals. And then he said, this house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations but you have made it into a den of thieves. Now most often and for many years I refer to it primarily in terms of temple cleansing. Until I began to realize where the words were coming from. Do you know where he quoted from? You have made it into a den of thieves. This house shall be called a house of prayer was from Isaiah. You have made it into a den of thieves came from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 1 to 15. And I've given it to you in your study guide to take a look at. Do you know what the context of those words were in Jeremiah 7? Not temple cleansing but destruction. Because he was saying Babylon is coming. The king of Babylon is coming and he's going. In fact, he specifically says, I will do to this temple what I did to the temple at Shiloh. It is going to be destroyed. Jesus quotes Jeremiah from a section where it's talking about temple destruction, not temple cleansing primarily. And as for the words, the den of thieves, apparently the, in the Hebrew language, the word translated thieves was also used of brigands and robbers. Those who resorted to violence. And they would hang out in caves. And so that was the den of thieves. And what Jesus was saying by transposition is, you guys, referring primarily to the Pharisees and the Zealots, this temple for you has become a symbol 
of your political revolution and national liberation through violence. And I suddenly thought of the many modern day parallels. Way back 20 years ago or so in my own country, when the Sikhs and the Hindus had the battle for a period of time, they finally, in the Indian army apparently all cornered many of the Sikhs, and they had all their armaments stashed in the Gurd, one of the most famous Gurdwaras. A religious place was being used as a place of armed revolution. Even now, periodically, we will read in the newspapers about how religious houses of worship are often places where soldiers had it because they think they're going to be invulnerable in that place. At any rate, Jesus' point to them was simply this. This place is destined for destruction. His actions were symbolic of that destruction that was coming. And at simultaneously, another judgment upon the Pharisaic approach, where he says, in your case, this temple has become a place of a symbol for national revolution, how can it then possibly fulfill Isaiah's intention or God's intention to Isaiah that this is intended to be a house of prayer for the nations? And by the way, to reinforce the fact that his actions were actions prophesying destruction and not cleansing, it is sandwiched in Mark's gospel. And Mark's gospel often does something. He will take one story and break it up and insert another story in the middle of it. Mark does that all the time. And the key to understanding that is he, he, he expects you to understand the middle story by the outside story. And the outside story to the cleansing of the temple, you know is what? The cursing of the fig leaf. Because that immediately, destruction. He wasn't cleansing the fig tree. He pronounced judgment upon it. So now you can see what his actions really meant. When you drive out the temp- money changers, the temple tax could only be paid by the shekel. And the, and the only way you could pay the shekel was to exchange your money for the temple tax. So if you can't exchange your money for the temple tax, you don't pay any more temple tax. What would happen to this church if everybody stopped paying their offerings? And w- sacrifices had to be bought. No animals, no sacrifice. No sacrifice, no worship. No worship, what's the point of the temple? You put all of these things together, his actions and his words, and this was a fulfillment of these words. The ultimate act of sacrilege from the perspective of those who held their symbols in this world. It would be considered the worst kind of desecration of your most critical component, symbolic component of your worldview. Which naturally raises the question, what is Jesus offering in his place? (laughs) What else was he saying? So much of his behavior was coded behavior in his actions. What did Jesus say? He said... uh, Where two or three are gathered, I'm present. I'm the new temple. (laughs) These people around me, they're the new Israel. I'm the sacrifice. You don't need the temple anymore. It's gone, it's finished. He was offering forgiveness apart from any animal sacrifices. And it is in me, he said, the exile is over. So you still remain in geographical exile. You still remain under political exile, but your exile is really over in me. Where I am, exile is over. You can see now why Jesus had crossed the point of no return. For three years, they had put up with this teaching. Slowly, the Pharisees had been getting more and more infuriated by his approach to the temple. And now, once he actually did this in the temple, the Sadducees were upset too. Now, this sounded like revolution to them. And you know what Rome did with revolution. Which means if Rome showed up, stamped them out, the Sadducees would lose their wonderfully nice compromise situation where lots of money was flowing into their own coffers through the temple tax, tax system. And so they, they all reached one conclusion. There was only one hope. This man's a false prophet. 
Anyone who teaches the way he is teaching, anyone who sabotages Jewish hope the way he's doing, anyone who would attack the symbols of Judaism and especially the temple is a false prophet who is leading the people astray. And God said you kill false prophets. But not just any other way, crucifixion. Why was crucifixion so essential? You see, in that hot-headed revolutionary climate that was first century Palestine, there were a lot of revolutionary movements. There were a dime a dozen. Messiahs kept coming and going. And the more obvious ones got crucified. Rome dealt very harshly with would-be liberators. And so a crucified Messiah was the ultimate contradiction. It was the clearest way of Rome telling everybody, this ain't no Messiah. He's totally powerless against Rome. And so, if they can get Jesus crucified, if they can get Jesus crucified, it would be the surest way of taking this seditious teaching out of the minds of the people. Because they would have to conclude. Because messiahs don't get beaten up by their enemies. Messiahs defeat their enemies. So a crucified messiah means a failure. And so that's what happened on Good Friday. Jesus said, do you you remember the two people on the road to Emmaus? What did they say? We were hoping. We were hoping. It's all gone. He's dead. He's just another false messiah. Yahweh has not yet come to Zion. The exile is not over yet. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees were happy. They forgot to take one thing into account. (laughs) Three days later. Resurrection. We'll look at that Sunday. But what did the resurrection mean? You see, if some arbitrary Jew had lived and died and rose again, it might have been a curiosity for a few weeks. It wouldn't have launched a movement called Christianity. But the fact that a man like this, who taught these things, who acted in this way towards the symbols of Israel, that this man would die and rise, rise again, raises a completely different picture. Now, it says, he was right. Yahweh has come to Zion. And he has not taken up residence in this old temple, but it is destroyed. The new temple is him and his followers. And the new symbols are baptism and communion. By the way, this also gives us some key insight into the fundamental transformation in Apostle Paul. Why was Paul a persecutor of the church? Paul wasn't a bad man, he was a good man. Paul was an intensely God-fearing man. But the concept of a crucified Messiah was such blasphemy to Paul. And in the early stages, Christianity was a Jewish sect. It, the clean break from Judaism to Christianity didn't start till AD 70 and wasn't complete till AD 135. But in those early years, it was just considered a Jewish sect. And for Paul, this had to be stamped out. It was the zeal for God that wanted to stamp them out. Because of a crucified Messiah. And yet, isn't it amazing that this same man later on writes to the Corinthians, I will preach nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What made a blasphemous doctrine the centerpiece of his whole preaching? He encountered the risen Jesus. And so he reinterpreted everything. He reinterpreted everything in the light of the resurrection. Anyway, as I said, that's next Sunday. What does all this mean for us today? What does what Jesus, a Jew, taught Jewish people before he ever died and rose again have to do with you and me? Well, we're living today, not under Rome, but we're living in a politically incorrect, hostile environment. So how should Christians live in this hostile environment? Uh, You know, we face exactly the same uh, temptations. Compromise, withdrawal, and power. Compromise is, well, you know what, let's get on with these people 
Let's carve out the best place for ourselves. There are all kinds of people in the churches of Jesus Christ today who are, who, whose goals and desires and dreams are totally indistinguishable from the non-Christians. Let me get the best job I can get. Let me get the highest paying job I can get. Let me make as much money as I can. Get the best house and the bar, drive the best cars I can. Have as much fun, fun as I can in this world. Look after me and mine. Oh yeah, I'll go to church. That's probably the closest thing that come to anti-supernaturalists. There's no supernatural dimension to their faith at all. They don't believe in that stuff. They don't really believe that there's a supernatural God who makes a difference. No, it's really all just up to us. Religious humanists. Small number perhaps here. Maybe none at all, I don't know. Withdrawal is the bigger danger. No, we are truly pious. We truly believe in a powerful God. But we're withdrawn. We don't know what to do. Maybe it's fear, like the disciples. But we retreat into our ghettos. Our comfortable little small groups. Our wonderful fellowships and worship services. And they're all real and important. But disengagement. Third option is, no, that's not good either. We want to be engaged in this world. We want to make a difference in people's lives. But then comes that, oh, the subtlest one of all. Not armed revolution, of course, but our trust in power, influence, manipulation, control. All of those things. The, the arm of the flesh, which will very easily lead to anger. Look at what's happening south of the border. In the political agenda. How quickly it has turned to violence. So the first lesson from it is no compromise, no withdrawal, no appeal to power. Instead, we are called to live the way of the Beatitudes in this society. That's the significance of the Sermon on It has a context. The context is in a hostile, politically incorrect environment, how are we going to live out our faith? Not these, but the way of the Beatitudes. That means again, humility, not arrogance. And we spent quite a bit of time in Isaiah repeatedly dealing with the issue of Personal arrogance. This is talking about corporate arrogance, which means there's no room for national arrogance, there's no room for ethnic arrogance, there's no room for denominational arrogance. But at all of these levels, humility. Personal, national, ethnic, and denominational. It is the way of mourning. Not over their sins, but ours. It is the way of meekness. When rights are trampled upon. And some of them are now and there may be more coming. Because we believe when Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. Not the ones who are violent. But the one I want to focus on are the way of mercy, peace and forgiveness. Remember Jesus' redefinition of exile? He said exile is over when your sins are forgiven. I forgive your sins. Today... Many of us who know Jesus as Savior have, have, are free from that exile. But because of our refusal to be merciful and forgiving towards those who have hurt us, we are living in self-imposed exile. Neil Anderson many years ago taught me something that I've never forgotten. He said, when people who have hurt us and we refuse to forgive them, you know what we think? We think we've got them on our hook and we are making them pay. A lady last night said to me, that's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to drop dead. When we refuse to forgive somebody, we don't have them on our hook. They don't even know. (laughs) They've got us on their hook and we're dying. That's what Jesus wants to set us free from. 
it was interesting yesterday morning i was doing my workout downstairs i happened to be watching the fox news and i mentioned this before in uh, pastor nancy's funeral service um, um uh, a book has been recently written called uh, one month to live 30 days to a stress free life it was people living life for one month as if it was going to be the last month of their lives and they were interviewing some people uh, who had been on this journey and uh, so the interviewer was asking questions what do you do i don't even know whether this girl, the other woman was a christian because she says i'm a pastor's wife but this one i don't know what her persuasion was but this is what she said she said one of the first things i did was to write a letter i grew up in an abusive home i wrote a letter forgiving the person who had abused me interesting isn't it and then he goes on not only the way of forgiveness but the way of blessing and prayer bless those who persecute you pray for those who are misusing you so this is the central thrust of jesus message over his lifetime to his people to his original audience as one of them in their context that in the kind of environment that we live in neither compromise nor withdrawal nor power but the way of the beatitudes the way of forgiveness and the way of blessing and prayer because it's the key to us being whole now of course the natural question is who is sufficient for this calling especially those of you who have been hurt especially those of you who faced injustice who is sufficient for such a calling the answer for that too comes from the palm sunday events you see we're not only uh, the forgiven people of god the new israel were also the new temple which was jesus said this this we have replaced that temple that has lost its function permanently and paul in ephesians making it much more clear describing us as stones that are being built up into a holy priesthood he said and you are being built up into a, te- a dwelling place for the spirit So not only can the Holy Spirit indwell each one of us and last week we talked about that how the spirit of understanding and wisdom the spirit of might and counsel the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord and the spirit of delight in the fear of the Lord how how that was available for each one of us we also as a body corporately as a temple need to be filled with the spirit because this way of living in this hostile environment is not primarily an individual thing we're called to do it as a community we need to help one another in this process that's no individual is sufficient for this no individual is people don't break through to this idea of forgiving their people who hurt them alone they have other people helping them especially those who've done it before them this woman who did it needed the help of this guy who wrote this book and a whole community that was living like this so together corporately we need to be filled with the spirit of god the lord who came suddenly into his temple will keep coming again last book in the old testament malachi said this The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in behold he will come says the Lord of hosts but who can abide the day of his coming who will stand because he will come like refiner's fire and like launderer's soap but he will come to purify he will come to purify the sons of levi that they will offer up an offering in righteousness and so the promise was fulfilled three times in the life of Jesus the first time he came suddenly into his temple he was 8 days old <laughs> only one old man recognized the cry One old man heard that cry and said this is what I've been waiting for all my life he's here he's here <laughs> and then he came suddenly 11 years later as a 12 year old boy into the temple 
And he shocked and confounded the, the teachers. That where this child, where did he learn to ask questions like this? And then 21 years later, he came one more time into the temple to destroy it and to pro- prophetically act out their message of destruction. And throughout the history of the church, the Lord has continued to come suddenly into his temple. On small scale and on large scale. Every time the church has pulled back into compromise, withdrawal, and, and, and resorting to the ways of power, Christ has sent his spirit in power. Some of the most recent ones, the 18th century evangelical awakening. George Whitfield and John, Ed, uh, John, um, um, John and Charles Wesley. And this side of the border, Jonathan Edwards and his colleagues. Middle, middle 18th century. Near the end of that century, uh, 1792, William Carey and his small band of followers and the modern missions movement was born out of that. Then in the middle of the 19th century, 1857 onwards, actually starting in Canada, Hamilton, Ontario, spilling over south of the border and then eventually all over the world. The great student volunteer movements under John R. Mott, the Salvation Army, all of those <coughs> starting during those revivals until the Welsh revival of 1906, where every church in Wales was full every night for 18 months. Can you just imagine that? Every church full in the city of Toronto every night for 18 months. And that Welsh revival then spilled over. And then there have been smaller ones in the Congo and the Hebrides and various places. And so, as this church, as this community, lives out however imperfectly this call... (laughs) To live out the, the, the way of Jesus in contrast to this way of compromise, withdrawal and power. We need to do what the disciples did. We need to gather and pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us. That's what we did in that song before the sermon. I don't know how many of you remember you were praying when you were singing it. Or were the words so familiar that they were just coming out of the mouth while the mind was thinking about lunch this afternoon? It happens to all of us. That's not, I'm not making that as a criticism. It happens to me. So we're going to do it again. We're going to have the worship team come. And we're going to sing these last two songs. They're actually prayers for revival. They're prayers for the Lord to suddenly visit His temple all over again. I trust you will sing them as a prayer with this as a background. Of two blessings that are on my heart. First for all of us. May God just bless us with a holy dissatisfaction. With the status quo. Thankful for what he has already done. But wanting so much more. That we might indeed be the people of God. In a hostile environment. That we find ourselves in. My second blessing is specifically for some of you here. Who need to let go. And forgive the people that have hurt you. And this blessing is a blessing for grace. And for power. And for faith to believe that it is your freedom that is at stake. And if you need some help, if there are people that you would just simply like you to pray with you and to consolidate that, our prayer team is right up here in front. While the rest of us leave, you can slowly make your way here. Okay, Go in Jesus' name.